Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Thrilled to be having a conversation with Ross Izzard. He is the director of policy with ACE Scholarships regarding this Supreme Court case. It's Espinoza versus the Mon- uh, Montana uh, Department of Revenue. Ross Izzard, welcome. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. So I want to hear about the case. But first of all, Ross, uh, you're the director of policy with ACE Scholarships. What is ACE Scholarships exactly? Yeah, sure. So uh, ACE Scholarships is a charity based here in Denver that provides uh, K-12 private school scholarships to low-income kids. So I've been doing that in Colorado since 2000. Today we've got eight states, about 7,000 kiddos on scholarships, going wow. to 700 private schools. So it's a, a big network of folks that we're able to help, and it's awesome work. I'm happy to be with them. Wow. And uh, you're the director of policy. So you said you have eight, seven or eight states now, huh? Eight states, yeah. Okay. So I, uh, I live in a little bit of a different bucket of the charity. So I do uh, any kind of policy work, legislative work, regulatory uh, basically, any, anything that has to do with public policy or government falls into uh, my realm, which means I get to work on some pretty interesting stuff, including this case. Well, this is really fascinating. So it's Espinoza versus the Montana Department of Revenue. So set this up for us, Ross. What is it exactly? Yeah, so basically this case, and I, I think there it merits some historical background, which we can get into in a second, but the... Uh, the case itself is a relatively small case out of Montana. Montana has a uh, scholarship tax credit program, which basically provides a tax credit to folks who give uh, to charities like ACE. So if you were to put your money toward a scholarship for a qualifying family, you would get a tax credit back from the state for that contribution. In Montana, the credit is very small, uh, but it's still a program that's out there and, and helping a number of kids. So basically, they passed this program, and it was written in a way to include all private schools. So if you wanted to go to a Christian private school, whether that's Protestant or Catholic, that was fine. If you'd rather go to a Jewish school, that's fine. If you'd rather go to a non-religious school, that was okay, too. Um, And it was written in a way to be as inclusive as possible, sort of to recognize the fact that every kid and every family is looking for something different. Uh, The Montana Department of Revenue threw a wrench into that by saying that religious schools could not participate because of a small clause buried down in the Montana State Constitution that says that no aid can flow to, quote, sectarian schools or institutions. So that's something called a Blaine Amendment that's in 38 states across the country. Montana is one of them, and it has one of the strictest. Uh, And basically the department said, look, you can't take this to religious schools, which instantly cuts out a big percentage of folks uh, of schools in in the universe, the provider universe, and also told the families that they weren't able to use their scholarships where they wanted to. So the families challenged them. Uh, They brought a case against the department. They worked their way up to the Montana Supreme Court, uh, where they actually, for the first time in American history, these tax credit programs get challenged on a pretty regular basis and uh, until now had always been upheld on the basis that tax credits don't constitute government appropriations. But in this case, the court surprised everybody and struck it down, uh, which has created this really interesting and, and pretty unique situation where we can now take the issue of the state Blaine amendments, those pieces of language that deny aid to uh, the, quote, sectarian institutions, all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which, as Kim, I know, as you know, we've been trying to do for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Supreme Court just recently said that they're going to take the case. They're actually going to sit down, hear it, uh, and deal with this issue, which has been plaguing America for really the better part of two centuries now. 
So, yeah, this is pretty historical. So you mentioned you were surprised on this then, huh, that, that they took this? Yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah. So we, um, you know, going back to Douglas County a couple of years ago, which I'm sure many folks remember, there was a big case that dealt with the same issue out of Colorado then. Uh, that was sort of the cleanest shot that we had ever had of, of getting this legal question settled and answered. Uh, that didn't play out the way that we wanted it to with the school board election, and the case ultimately didn't make it. Um, this was the next best chance, and everybody sort of wrote it off because we assumed, you know, these programs are built in such a way, and they've been tested so many times legally. The general assumption was that the court just wouldn't go there, that they were going to follow legal precedent, uphold the program, and kind of that would be that. Uh, the fact that they broke with that legal precedent, I mean, there are, reams and reams of legal writing on this issue that they had to break with to get where they got uh, when they struck down the program. It was a big surprise and actually a, a really awesome surprise. So, you know, you don't usually like to lose in court, but this was one of those situations where when the uh, ruling came down and we saw that we had lost, there was sort of some dancing in the hallways because it was almost a miracle that it went that way, and now we can get that appeal up to SCOTUS. Okay, well, let's stop right there and and give us the history on this Blaine Amendment. It's absolutely fascinating what happened with it. So uh, what happened to get the Blaine Amendment into the constitutions of 38 states? Yeah, thanks. uh, Interesting story for sure. So um, I think the best way to start with it is probably to go back to 1874, uh, which was a massive Democratic wave election, which I know folks have been talking about in the modern era over the last couple of years. But this was a, a real wave election where we had more than 90 seats in the House change hands between Republicans and mostly Southern Democrats. Um, the South was reconstructed and sort of flexing its political muscle at the time. And uh, basically there was a situation there where the Republicans had lost the House, they had lost some seats in the Senate, They were very worried with the uh, Grant administration and the scandals it was facing that they could lose the presidency in 1876. So they were looking around for issues that they could use to get out there and really win themselves some voters. One of the biggest issues after a big wave of Catholic immigration in the 1850s was sort of how they were going to handle all of these Europeans with Catholic beliefs who were coming into a largely Protestant uh, country with largely Protestant public schools at the time. And uh, President Grant actually grabbed onto that, gave a speech that sort of tagged into what they called the school question. And I think that's a – folks don't realize that the school choice issue has been going for hundreds of years. Um, so even back in the 1800s, we were having these arguments about where money could go, which schools kids could attend. Um, and President Grant actually grabbed onto that, gave a speech calling for a total ban on any ability for folks to take their money to, quote, sectarian schools – Uh, which at the time, just so folks understand, sectarian was a pejorative word. It was something that was meant to denote heresy or folks who believed things that were sort of uh, icky and apart from the mainstream, and most importantly was really kind of considered a euphemism for Catholic. That was the way that the word was used. Um, So President Grant called for it. That led an ambitious congressman who had been Speaker of the House but lost his seat named James G. Blaine, to offer an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would have put the same language banning aid to sectarian institutions into the Constitution of the United States. He lost that amendment. He ultimately lost his bid for the presidency, which he was hoping to grab the nomination out of this. Uh, But the result of these two guys trying to get the Republicans into a spot where they could win in 1876 was that they really reinvigorated this conversation about sectarian schools and aid to kids attending sectarian schools. So as states started coming into the Union, uh, Colorado obviously joined in 1876. Uh, There were many other states that came in around that time or thereafter. 
And all of these states coming in sort of read the political tea leaves and understood that this was a major issue for the administration. It was something that they needed to be paying attention to, and it was in line with public opinion. Uh, so they started adopting these Blaine Amendments. Some of them predated it, but a lot of them came after. And by the time we were all said and done, you had 38 states with some version of this amendment on the books, which for those of us who work on educational choice and who believe the kids ought to be able to pick whichever school they want, whether that's public, private, charter, home, whatever, uh, it has been a real stumbling block. So the idea that we have a chance to finally sit down and deal with this question that's been around for you know, well over 150 years now and settle it and get kids the help they need is, is massive. It's hard to overstate how huge it is. So, I mean, this is huge. So you say this is going to settle this question. It very well could, yeah. I mean, so it's always hard to say how the court's going to rule. And, I, you know, candidly, uh, Justice Roberts is not always the most reliable on these issues. Uh, but I think that with the new court composition, I mean, it looks far different today even than it did in 2017 during the Douglas County case. Uh, you know, I, I think that they are in a position to go out there and really deal with it. I think that there is a desire among at least a few of the key justices on the court to actually do that. And so I think there's a real shot that they could. Okay. And so, Ross, I, I think we're going to go to break here. But um, I want to talk about why it is so important that families be able to have the choice on where their kids go to school because every child is different and they learn differently. And uh, there's been such a a stumbling block for people to get to do that. And uh, certainly the cost of education is one of the reasons. So we're going to go to break. When we come back, let's talk about why uh, it is so important that families be able to choose where their children go to school. We'll be right back with Ross Izzard. He's the Director of Policy with ACE Scholarships. Hey, welcome back to the Americhicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. We're having a conversation with Ross Izzard, who's the director of policy with uh, A Scholarship. Before we do that, though, Patty, our researcher, she got this answer for us, Steve, regarding uh, the Hickenlooper story, okay? She said, at a CNN town hall this past March, uh, Governor Hickenlooper told the story that he was going to see Deep Throat with a friend. At the last minute, he asked his mom, and she said yes. This happened while he was in college in 1972. He said at the time he didn't know that it was an X-rated movie and thought Deep Throat was just a little naughty. So there's your clarification on that, Steve. Oh, boy, I can I can get through the rest of the day now. Thank you, Patty. Okay, yeah. We always like to make sure that we get everything clarified. So sorry about that, Ross, but we had talked about that, and we always like to get the whole story, and we didn't didn't have the facts on that, so now we do. Okay. School choice, the the ability for families to be able to choose where their children go to school, why is this so important? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I so first thing that we should say is that a lot of families can, right? So there are a lot of folks who are, are doing well, who are fairly affluent and, and doing okay in the financial world, who already sort of do this, right? So they move to neighborhoods that have the schools that they want, or they can drive to the schools that they want to attend. If they'd like to do a private school, they can pay tuition. So you know, school choice, at least for the folks who are, are out there and, and well off, is already a reality and something that they understand pretty innately. Um, but there are a lot of folks who can't do that, right? And so I think sometimes it's easy when you're one of the people who is fortunate enough to be able to buy a house in a good district and access the schools that you want to sort of forget that there are a great many hundreds of thousands of people in this state, in Colorado, much less the millions across the country, who just don't have those opportunities. So they are in schools that 
you know, maybe aren't working for them just in general, whether or not they're good schools. It could be that they're being bullied. It might be that the schools are teaching, uh, you know, beliefs or philosophies or ways of thinking that their parents or their families disagree with that aren't in alignment with their value systems. Or in the worst cases, it could be that they're not safe, right? They could be in a school where uh, they're in danger of being hurt or falling into criminal activity. It could be that they can't learn how to read or write there. Uh, there are a lot of bad situations out there for folks where it's just not a good fit for the child one way or the other. Um, and ACE comes at it from the perspective of every single family in America should be able to go out and pick the school that works for them. Um, and we're completely agnostic about what that looks like. So you could go and pick a traditional public school if you'd like to go to your neighborhood school. We think that's great. If you'd like to go to a public charter school, that's awesome. You can pick whichever model you want. Maybe it's uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. Maybe it's uh, an art school or a language school, whatever you need. But we also think that, you know, private schools, which for a long time, because they charge tuition, have been the domain only of folks who could really afford that tuition, should be accessible to anybody who would like them. And it might be that they pick them because they like the value structure of a Christian education or any other type of religious education. Or it could just be that they're looking for smaller class sizes or a school that's safer. It could be any of those things. But I think the short version is that we can't really presume what a family needs, right? I mean, parents know best what their children need. Families know what works for them and what doesn't. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, school choice is really just the idea that we ought to be opening as many doors as we can and sort of getting out of the way so that folks can make the calls that they need to make for their children and, and their families. Well, you know, Ross, one of the things that you hear people say, though, that if uh, families have the choice on where they send their children to school, then the school in the neighborhood um, might lose students and might eventually close down, thereby that might hurt uh, the remaining kids. How would you respond to that? Yeah, um, that comes up pretty frequently. So I think the first thing that I would say is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, this already happens all the time, right? So Colorado is an open enrollment state. Uh, you can enroll in a public school that's not your assigned public school, both inside your school district and outside your school district. Uh, you could choose to homeschool. You could choose to move to another state. There's a whole bunch of stuff that has kids moving around all the time by the tens of thousands. So uh, the idea of, of enrollment changes is, number one, not new, and number two, certainly not something that the schools don't cope with on a daily basis. I think the second part of that is that even the largest private school choice programs in the country, so if you look at, say, Florida's tax credit program where you've got about 100,000 kids participating and about $700 million a year there, even there, you're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% of the student population. So we're not talking about 50% of the kids leaving their public schools and going to a private school. It's a relatively small percentage. And then the last thing I would say is just, you know, you kind of get to a place where you have to start thinking about the question of ownership, right? So kids who go to a public school, I think sometimes there's a mindset that the public school somehow has a claim on those children and the money that comes from the state to educate them. And they really don't, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if the child isn't there, whether that's because they moved away or they decided to homeschool or they open enrolled out of the district or because they went to a private school, the simple fact of the matter is that that money doesn't belong to the district if the student isn't there. So I think the idea that it would be catastrophic for public schools for a few kids to be able to pick something better, uh, probably not going to happen. And certainly we haven't seen it happen in the 25 or 30 years that we've been doing private school choice programs in the country. Uh, but number two, even if that were the case, I think you kind of get back to the question of what's more important, the sort of financial well-being of the system that may not be serving everybody well or the well-being of the child who deserves the education that they need. Okay. Uh, thank you for that explanation. But another question or another issue that comes up is that 
some of these families uh, that their kids are going to the neighborhood school, they would not have the ability to get their kids to another school. They don't have that that opportunity because maybe both parents work or whatever. And so it's not fair, again, that uh, some kids get to, to drive to a school that works for them where these other kids may be stuck because there is no um, you know, school transportation to get them to uh, a, a school that they might want to go to. How would you address that? Right. Yeah, no, that's a big one. Transportation is a, is a really big one and one that's tough to solve with public policy. So um, it's true enough that, you know, folks need to make their transportation schedules work both with home and, and with their work schedules. And it's, um, it can be challenging. It's challenging for me and my family, and there are certainly cases where folks can't sort of put the pieces together in a way that makes sense on that. Um, in some cases, folks get around that by busing, particularly with charter schools. So public charter schools will, in some districts, actually bus kids back and forth to sort of help alleviate that. Some private school scholarship programs actually include transportation scholarships that can't mitigate the, the time or the hassle of you having to go and do it. There's really no way for government to fix that. Uh, but they do provide scholarships to folks so that they can use it to cover the cost of gas, or if they're going to do public transportation, they could use it to cover that or carpool. Um, so there are sort of small things that we can do to nibble around those edges. I think, you know, largely the issue of transportation and geography is something that uh, is very tough for government to solve with public policy. So I spent a lot of time on that issue, but I would be lying if I said that I had the perfect solution to the transportation question this morning. But, you know, Ross, I think that where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, I think that people can get creative. They can they can take turns on on getting kids to school. I mean, I think that I think that people are innovative and creative enough that generally they can get that figured out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, every day millions of families do, um, including mine. And it's a, it's a process. Your kids go to different schools and they're spread out. And sometimes you've got to drive out of the way to get to the school that's right for you. And, um, you know, it's not always the most convenient. But, yes, in a lot of cases you make it work. In those few cases where you can't make it work, uh, you know, I always hope to put some supports in place to help how we can. But uh, you're right. I mean, if you really, really want your child at that school and that's what he or she needs, I think an awful lot of parents will say, well, I'll just do what I have to do to make that happen. Okay. Thank you. I, I'd like to go over, we have just a few minutes left, and that is uh, Douglas County. Uh, several years ago, there was a, a Douglas County School Board has been in the news, and um, and there was a very big school board race a few years ago. Uh, when, in essence, it was, it was for the marbles of the Blaine Amendment. Uh, there had been something that had been challenged, and it was, I mean, it was to the Supreme Court, wasn't it, Ross? I can't remember. It seems like it was. And the new school board then just pulled that, that back, and so th- there was never a ruling on that question. Yeah, that's exactly right. So basically there was a, a case out of Douglas County that dealt with their local voucher program. It was the first of its kind in the country, that program. It worked its way up to the Colorado Supreme Court. It was struck down by the Colorado Supreme Court and then appealed up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's where it got interesting. So the U.S. Supreme Court technically took the case, but they issued a grant vacate and remand order, which basically said that they took the case for two seconds, uh, vacated the decision, and then remanded it back to the Colorado Supreme Court for further consideration. So they never actually dealt with it. They sort of dodged this issue completely. Um, That was before, obviously, the new justices were sort of in place. But they kicked it back down and punted it, and that set up the school board election that you mentioned, where now you've got this massive case with this just enormous historical significance attached to it and a school board majority that was sort of hanging on by a thread. So the folks on the side of school choice, the conservative side, needed to keep all four seats. 
and unfortunately weren't able to do that. The result was that the new board, who hated this program and everything to do with it, uh, decided to go ahead and, and repeal the program in the books, which basically made the case moot, right? Courts are, number one, already not looking to jump into this issue because it's sticky, and number two, we're sort of given this easy out because they could say, well, look, the program doesn't exist anymore. This is a waste of time. We're just not going to go there. Um, and that's exactly what happened. They basically mooted the case, and it was tossed out for being irrelevant because the program no longer existed, which put us back in the limbo of, okay, well, we've still got to get this question answered. How are we going to do it? And that's where the Montana case comes in. Which is absolutely fascinating. Now, let's talk a bit about education. ACE Scholarships, you know, is doing fabulous work in helping families get their kids into schools that work best for their families. But you can never take, you know, get back second grade. You can never get back third grade. And, Russ, what I've seen happening in education, I am the beneficiary of a, a really good public education, really more along the classical sense. I graduated where I, I can run a household. I can, you know, balance a checkbook. I can write a sentence. I can speak most of the time. Sometimes on Monday morning, it's a, a little interesting here on the radio. But, but had the tools that would allow me to to go after, you know, pursue my happiness. And uh, what I have seen happening as I watch some of the education. In, and some of the results is that we are graduating kids that cannot read and write, that do not have a sense of history. I mean, I used to watch jaywalking on um, Jay Leno and kind of laugh because it was kind of funny that people wouldn't understand that. But I see some of these programs now where they're out on the street asking people things like basic things, like who was our first president? And people don't know that. What is happening in, in public education? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, those those videos are terrifying, no doubt. Um, I think, you know, you go back to some of it is reading and writing, and I think that those skills are something that, you know, a lot of our schools will take a kid who is two or three, sometimes four or five grade levels behind, and they do yeoman's work getting that child up to speed as much as they can so that they can leave at least with the very basic skill sets that they need to be able to survive, right? I mean, at that point, it, it isn't even really about being able to get out and succeed. It's about just being able to make it uh, with the basic skills that you have so that you can live independently. On the civic side, though, when you're talking about those interviews that you see, that's a big problem. And I think, you know, folks forget that the public education system was founded really with the idea of building virtuous citizens. It was about making people who could live in a republic and engage in self-government in a thoughtful and intelligent way. And we've sort of gotten away from that, um, in part because schools have more and more focused on the math and reading side of things, and in part because a lot of schools just aren't doing a good job of imparting that sort of knowledge to folks. So, uh, you know, part of the school choice angle that we don't talk about very often is the fact that private schools very often do a better job of, of inculcating civic values and getting folks familiar with both American government and their role in American government than some of the public schools do, which... Uh, is concerning considering how many millions of kids are in public schools, but we're working on it. Slowly. Well, that's that's what's important. So, Ross Izzard, thank you so much, 